0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the InDefense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because I have someone on that is truly passionate about plants, protecting biodiversity, and trying to understand the ways we can do it better. Joining us is Paul Heipel. Paul is a geologist-turned-botanist and has poured all of his energy over the last few decades into trying to protect native biodiversity, especially In California. And today he's here to talk to us about literal grassroots efforts to protect a handful of different areas from invasive species like the yellow star thistle. What's important to understand is that Paul is a perfect example of why we need to talk about successes in conservation and really anything for that matter, because successes let us know that good things are possible. But I'll let him tell you because his passion is contagious. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Paul Heipel. I hope you enjoy. All right, Paul Heipel, it is so exciting to have you on the podcast. I really can't wait to pick your brain on all the wonderful things you've done over the years. But first, how about you start off by introducing yourself. Tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
1: Okay, I am a geologist by training. I was a petroleum geologist for a number of years in Denver, Colorado. Wow. And uh, after that, I always have had an interest in plants, bugs, everything. Um, natural history is my thing. Awesome. And it was in a um, field trip to Arizona that uh, we went down to look at copper pits. Hmm. And of course, course you're looking at the desert and I went, whoa, this is really something. (laughs) Got interested in cacti.
0: Interesting.
1: Then I was with the Botanic Gardens in Denver and they have orchid collections and they have A man named Panioti Kledis, who was just (laughs) starting his uh, rock garden in the corner of the uh, garden. So I got involved with all of these people, and it was just really interesting. Moved to Pennsylvania, wanted to get in something like that again, found the Muhlenberg Botanical Society. It's a little tiny society in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Nice and then when i moved to california i got with the california native plant society oh boy <laughs> and with them um i wanted to learn the plants fairly quickly and so i i actually came here and went immediately down to one of the conservation places says, who do i go to to learn plants of California? oh the native plant society so i joined without meeting anybody in the chapter <laughs> and started going on their field trips Because that's the way i always figured the way to learn them is you go out and see them in the wild heck yeah and uh yeah uh, i I met a man who was doing a lot of work at edgewood um i also became a docent right away and uh that helped me learn them (laughs) and you know you can look at the place it was just full of weeds everything's full of weeds out here yeah and I got sucked into it.
0: That's that's my
1: introduction.
0: (laughs) And here you are. I mean, that is, I I love those stories. It's just passion and passion drives interest and interest drives, I mean, all manner of different things. That's why I do what I do. I get to talk to people like you, but it sounds like it wasn't just enough to geek out on identifying and understanding these things. You wanted to do something to help them, right? I mean, native plants everywhere need our help.
1: Well, the big thing that kicked it in was um, Mr. Edgewood. He wasn't running the weed program then. It was Ellie Hess. Okay. And now uh, his name is Ken Himes. I don't know if I put in names or not. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Well, we were looking at it. It looks like it was evading coming into the place where there were some rare plants, Fertularia liliaceae. Ooh. So we were looking at this wall of yellow star and said, you know, we've got to slow this down. So we would go there and sit on the edge of this massive yellow star and just pull for hours and maybe make a couple of feet of progress. (laughs) And so, you know, we were doing that just to save the the last things. Um, It actually, it was infesting 105 acres and the whole place is, uh, 467 acres. Wow, and most of it is not grassland. There's an awful lot of woodland. Sure. So, and there is some good serpentinite uh, grasslands that the yellow star cannot in, um, invade. Thankfully, <laughs> so there were areas that you know you just wouldn't see yellow star. Never see it. In fact, we had little gullies where you see a a little line between one side and the other yellow star be on one side, but not on the other. And that Mm. was because the soils on one side were good enough washing down from other rock types. And then the other side was just serpentinite and no, no yellow star.
0: Geology matters.
1: Oh, it does. I mean, (laughs) this is one of the things that I've really learned with Edgewood. It's, are you familiar with Melanges? I have no, no, no. Okay. Um, Out here in California, where you have continents colliding, you get these rocks called melanges. It's just this ground up mess of rocks. Hmm. And you cannot do what normal geologists do, and that's look at a formation. So you go in, you say, here's the bottom, here's the top. This is measured this high, and it has these things at these levels, and all of that's important. (laughs) can't do that there are no tops there's no bottoms everything's (laughs) mixed up it looks like a a fractal oh boy every level you look at it it looks the same there are little bits of this rock mixed in with that rock all the way up to these huge boulders mountain type things sitting in serpentinite wow so it's really really amazing
0: Oh, boy. And I mean, geologically, that is just from the collision of the Pacific plate into the North American plate, right?
1: Yes. Um, It's having all that oceanic material stuffed down into the crust (laughs) and down into the mantle. And then it gets barfed back up. I call it Earth barf.
0: Nice. I like that. (laughs) That truly puts an image in my head that I think encapsulates what you're trying to illustrate uh, in a very colloquial way. I appreciate that. And again,
1: Uh, (laughs) it's just amazing. It looks that that way. You know, there are all these metamorphic rocks mixed in with, you know, stuff that's not metamorphosed, (laughs) you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like that. And again, it is just this wonderful reminder of these massive processes that are extremely hard to perceive on any sort of human timescale, unless you unfortunately are a victim of an earthquake. But it all comes (laughs) together to inform biology in a big way.
1: At least they aren't the earthquakes that produce the melange. Those are the big, big, big earthquakes. The nines that you hear with, you know, like the one in Indonesia, the one in Japan, the one in Chile. Those things are enormous. And we're going to have one up in the Northwest someday. Lovely. Um, Yeah. (laughs) They're still subducting up there.
0: (laughs) Oh, boy. My heart goes out to those folks and everything else that's up there. Oh, man. (laughs) But, you know, thinking about this in the context of invasive species, I mean, it's a hot-button issue, sometimes rightly so, sometimes not so rightly so, and and we'll get into Yellow Star in, in a minute here, but, you know, as someone that's worked on this, that someone that cares about native biodiversity, especially some things that could easily disappear from the landscape, I run into a lot of people that, you know, some well-informed, some not so, that think invasive species, we should just let it be. It's nature taking its course, and I just, I can't validate that mindset. Now what are your thoughts?
1: My thoughts is monocultures produce nothing. (laughs) Perfect. One (laughs) of the things that I noted by the way when we were hitting that wall of Yellow Star, nothing was eating it. Mm. There was no damage on the plants, nothing. I'm always looking for this. Sure. One day I found something had chewed on it. Hey, there's something chewing on this. (laughs) So I went and looked about biocontrols. And huh. sure enough, they had been releasing biocontrols just across the road from um, Edgewood County Park. Interesting. And they were making their way in. Huh. And it, it's re- biocontrols are really one of the best things you can do um, because they are always out working on it. I only go out on Fridays. <laughs> True. Right? The bugs are out there eating the entire season. And yeah. they do a lot of damage. That's now, awesome. they haven't found a single biocontrol to stop Edge or Yellow Star. But what I found was that once the, um, there are two of them that are really doing a good job. Mm. Once they got established, Yellow Star didn't drop seeds for the first month. Ooh. So essentially, they hit almost every head, damage everything. So we had an extra month. They didn't produce as many seeds. So instead of finding a thousand per square meter, you had bigger plants, but fewer of them. So they were easier to do. Okay. And they also, on what I would consider marginal soils, they disappeared for a while. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now, what happened, of course, if you have a biocontrol, what happens? biocontrols attract predators. Ah. And sure enough, the spiders showed up in the uh, yellow star. There was uh, rodents that would come and they would chew off the uh, seed heads. Why were they doing that? Not to eat the seeds. They were looking for the bugs in the seed heads.
0: A little hit of protein.
1: Yes. I actually found that out by reading an article about the prairie thistles. Oh yeah. Which they had a biocontrol that was released that eats all thistles. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the problems, of course, was that these rodents were now coming and snipping off the flower heads to look for the bugs.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah, ecology is so, yeah. messy.
1: And the other thing, too, is I had uh, two interns of mine they, at um, Grassroots Ecology, which is a nonprofit I worked for for 10 years. Hmm. And they were. I gave them the task of going to Yellow Star's Taking off the heads and seeing what was coming out of them on each individual plant, so nice. it's like let's see what biocontrols were doing, and what we found was that typically a plant that had one biocontrol had only that one, not the others. Hmm. That's interesting. interesting, yeah. But once we were roping up, there were these fly, um, wasps coming out, little parasitic wasps. Ooh. Turns out a native parasitic wasp decided to go after the Eustinopus filosa which is a weevil, and we're eating them. Huh. <laughs> wow. Who'd have thought? <laughs> well, that's it. You know, nature is, you know, if you've got something to eat and it's close enough to what you go after, yeah. There they are.
0: That's exciting. Yeah. I mean I I like reading about biocontrols, I mean, obviously these things have to be properly researched and vetted before they enter the landscape, yeah. but they're an important tool in the toolbox of invasive species management. But the theme here, the reason I was turned on to your work and your efforts is because of this yellow star, yellow star thistle, if I'm thinking
1: correctly, right? It is yes. a
0: thistle. So tell us a little bit more about this plant. What is it? Where did it come from? Or what do you know about it?
1: Um, let's see. Centaurium solitensis. Okay, it it blooms at the solstice. Oh, <laughs> and that's why it's got the name.
0: Interesting.
1: So it, it it's typically about uh, one year, week either side of the solstice it starts blooming. There are a few early ones on hot spots. It's from the region of Turkey, sort mm. of the upper Mediterranean area. Um, it doesn't have thistle-like leaves. All of these spines are on the flower heads ah
0: okay hence you can it pull is it actually
1: <laughs> yeah this is the genus of nap which i'm sure you know about oh yes yeah yeah so it's got the same sort of thing only it has the needle sharp spines on the heads okay makes it very unpleasant to walk through yeah i can imagine <laughs> um it's a uh, annual winter annual it germinates with the rains it has a 10-year seed bank so Yikes. Whenever you go in and start working on it, you have to worry about 10 years later when being dug up by a gopher and uh, germinates and starts it all over again. How fun. The really best thing we had is that um, my friend Ken Himes got a hold of a book, which was Biology and Control of Yellow Star Thistle. Hmm. And it talked about mowing. And the mowing, the timing of the mowing is extremely important. Because what this plant does, it goes from a rosette to a plant with no rosette leaves, just this spike coming up with all the flower heads. Wow. And those contain only leaves that are like little tiny scales. So they might be a half an inch long coming off, but they go along the stem. So what you do is you time your mowing for about when five, two to 5% of the flowers are starting to open the plants have that many flowers you mow it nice and that kills most of the plants nice so and if you follow up two weeks later you can get another group of them so we actually got the county to go out and mow and they only they wanted it as a scientific project we had a control and everything excellent and you know it really worked huh go figure So we started off with mow site one, and we went to mow site two, mow site three, (laughs) just, you know. Right. Um, And a lot of this, actually, to do this job, the economy had a lot to do with when and where we did it.
0: Interesting. How so?
1: Okay. So mowing costs money. Yeah. So um, this was the late 90s when we started. We started our first mowing in 1998. And the county was flush with money because we had the dot-com boom. Ah, okay. 2000 hit. <laughs> Poof, the money disappeared for the county. Yeah. The county wouldn't mow anymore. However, the state had uh, revived their weed management areas, the WMAs.
0: Hmm.
1: And they had, the revival was they had money to grant to people. So the way to get it out to the people who were doing the work was to have them apply through the WMAs. Okay, so we rushed into the WMA and got a grant. (laughs) Here we go, eight acres, and then we got another grant. But that, then, in the state legislature, because the dot-com bubble had busted and uh, politics, Mm. eh, money dried up for the grants. So then the subprime mortgage thing hit. And that was a real blow. We had no money at all for years. Oof.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine.
1: And so there was no mowing at all for all that time. Dang. And so it was all hand pulling. That's really (sighs) slow. (laughs) Yeah. See, what we would do is we would mow, and then we would hand-pull. Because once you mowed it a couple times, you're now working on the seed bank, and that's a lot less than just seeds pouring out. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh, slowly taking a, a pool of water with dye in it and diluting it to the point where you're like, do we even notice there's dye in there? But <laughs> monumental yeah. efforts. And it just goes to show you how like the vagaries of human society can influence these processes. And I mean, it's lucky that, you know, California even has uh, an inkling to want to try to do something about stuff like this. but you know, I mean, other than the mowing and the pulling, was there any other efforts? Because like you said, it's slow. You want to get on top of it before it has a chance to go to seed. I mean, is it kind of all encompassing outside of that and the biocontrol?
1: That's all we do. Wow. You know, uh, we would, I, Ken Himes ran the thing until 2007. And then he, he wanted to get out and see the world, see some plants, some other places. (laughs) Unfortunately, as soon as he retired, his father got sick oh, and then his sucks. mother was alive. <laughs> he had Dang. all these family problems to Damn. cover. So I took over and I was a little hesitant to do it because I didn't feel I was qualified. Hmm. But I put up a battle plan of how I was going to do this. <laughs> um, essentially, Yellow Star does not have a good seed dispersal. There's very little pappus on the seed. Oh, that's nice. So the furthest that uh, Joe D. Tommaso is the weed god at uh, Davis, who <laughs> does a lot of research on it, said about 90 feet. Oh. So most of the seeds fall right around the mother plant.
0: That's convenient.
1: So that's convenient. That's, that's a real good thing. So now we have the ideas you go downhill, you start at the top, move downhill or and upwind to downwind. Hmm so if you do that you can kind of sweep them out of the place
0: <laughs> that's awesome
1: <laughs> we also had you know places we wanted to hit because there were rare plants there so those took priority too sure
0: sure but a little bit of logistics and physics uh, kind of played into the factory yeah you know?
1: it does um also you know i did i, I didn't want to do experiments at edgewood yeah it's a real sensitive place to do it right but when i got the job with uh, grassroots ecology I, they have yellow star too, so I started doing experiments. You're Ooh. Like, why? Why is this? it's like the uh, thing on the biocontrols. You know, how are they working on these plants? Right. But I I always noticed that yellow star doesn't grow in the woods. Hmm. So I thought, well, you know, what can we do to dispose of these bio uh, uh, yellow stars that have seed? Right. So I tried putting them in the wood. Don't do anything. They just uh-huh. go away. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's okay. a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's kind of so nice. I took that to Edgewood and we had these little, you know, because of the melange, there are these blocks of woodlands okay. sitting out in the serpentine. And we would choose those. And we'd go and put the big piles in there. We had piles that were oh, wow. six feet high, 10 feet long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right.
1: Huge amount of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, disposal is a big part of any sort of invasive species management.
1: Yes. And I, you know, after looking at what was happening when we um, bagged it and took it out, which was the preferred way to do it, I think that, yeah. I always noticed that there's two things that new weeders always say. You always have to get all, all the root. No, you don't. These <laughs> plants are annuals, so they don't have anything in the root to come up with. Nice. <laughs> the next other thing they say is you have to bag it and get it out. Just, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can put it in the field in a big pile and it doesn't do very much. Right. But it's kind of unsightly. Yeah. Yeah. But you put it in the woods, nobody sees it.
0: <laughs> there you go. Bingo. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> what I love too is, you know, it's one thing to be doing this on any landscape and helping native biodiversity wherever you're at, but it's another thing to go above and beyond and add to the scientific understanding of this process to do some controlled experimentation so that it's not just anecdotes. It's, it's data to back up a lot of these efforts.
1: We actually uh, did uh, one at the um, other uh, grassroots ecology. Instead of using mowers, mechanical,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they use size. Oh, that sounds fun. And I'm not very good with a side, but the people who were went in there, <laughs> and they just scythed this whole hillside of it. Wow. And the piles that they made on the hillside, there were no woodlands near to put it in. You could see them on the Google Earth satellite photos. Oh, you know, here are yeah. these spots of, you know, that's a pile of Yellow Star. There's another <laughs> one. There's another one. It worked.
0: Heck yeah! (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's so fantastic.
1: I also wanted to say that one of the uh, reasons I didn't want to take the yellow star out, besides you know the work to do it, sure, the biocontrols are in the heads. Ah. So, somebody I knew had a whole car full of bags (laughs) that they had taken the yellow star from it, and I looked in the back of their car. And all along the window were thousands of dead beetles oh, and wow. flies. Oh, man. And I said, you know, one of those Houston velosa costs a dollar. Oh, boy. <laughs> You've got a couple thousand dollars worth of dead beetles <laughs> <Man>. here. <laughs> so, yeah, why are we taking these away when, if you leave them there, yeah. the biocontrols come out and hit them again? Wow. <laughs> I mean, that
0: is some excellent foresight, but yeah, it kind of puts it in perspective when you're sitting there going, oh, crap.
1: Yeah, I look in there like, oh, you know what those are all over your car?
0: Whoops. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I've done that with galls. You put galls in a bucket or something like that, and you put a covering over it, and then you open it up. You're like, whoa, that's a lot of little wasps. (laughs) Nice. He's showing us a gall right now on the image, everyone. (laughs) Oak apple gall. (laughs) That's fun. Oh, man. And so yeah. thinking about all of these efforts, I mean, you're doing it something that a satellite can kind of see from space. That's a huge effort. Yeah. All of this was kind of precipitated by wanting to do something for native biodiversity. So how did the native plants respond to the areas you were clearing?
1: Well, the coolest one was the last place we went out to was this part of the park that's a little bit remote from all the rest of it. Um, it's called the Clarkia area because it had used to at least, Mm. have a lot of Clarkia rubricundas and Clarkia purpureas bloom there. And they're nice wildflowers in the late spring. Farewell to Springs, they're called. (laughs) So that was the last area we went out. And when I first went out there, I realized these rocks are different here. This is full of, you know, metamorphic rocks that are almost completely digested by the serpentinite. Mm. You have these weird you know bands you can see a line on the ground and, and native plants start at that line and then they go and they change <laughs> another another line parallel to that there's another change so i'm thinking this is probably rich stuff huh. and it was um, as we removed the yellow star we got a lot of coyote mints and uh, oh. uh, calicordis flowers Ooh. yeah nice the real be- big uh, kicker was underneath the yellow star was a bunch of milkweed, our narrow leaf milkweed. Awesome. So the narrow leaf milkweed out here, it's the only one in the Bay Area that's, well, not in the Bay Area. I should say in the lowlands that we have. Okay. Um, this is uh, Sclepius fascicularis. Fascicularis. Yeah, there we go. That's, yeah, I think that's it. It likes wet um areas and the Clarkia is full of them and underneath all the yellow star was this milkweed that's exciting and so we once we started to realize that um we have a man who's trying to reintroduce the uh bay checker spot butterfly into edgewood because it went extinct from the fumes of the cars fertilizing the grassland grass grew up and covered up their food and they went Uh away so (laughs) bummer yeah that's a bummer all right so he's into butterflies and he had us go out and count the number of stems of milkweed And it's in the thousands oh wow
0: yeah it's really impressive yeah that's exciting ah like the it's one thing to put in all the effort and feel good about clearing an area it's another thing to have nature come back
1: yes it is um you know I think that uh, we're we're still working on the grasses. There are a lot of uh, non-native grasses that yeah. are a problem, and they form a lot of thatch. So we're, we're kind of working right now to see whether we can do anything about that. Right. But yeah, we got a lot more big perennial stuff. Um, there's another one called narrow-leaf mule's ears, wyethia, and gustafolia.
0: Oh, like a little uh, composite,
1: right? Uh, an yeah, it's a composite. Thing. It looks like little little uh, sunflowers out in the field. Yeah. And it's a genius. perennial and it's a rhizomatous. Well, as I'm watching over the, the last few years, I'm seeing new plants starting to show up where we cleared the milkweed Excellent. or the yellow star. And that's what's really interesting is I think now it's the jays take and cache the seeds and then they come up. And once you've got a plant, it starts to move out.
0: So, <laughs> you got your own little uh, restoration ecologists in the the native fauna as well.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Gophers move around bulbs and <laughs> things like that. Um, we have a, a one area that was that came out of the yellow star in the Clarkia area that has hundreds and hundreds of a um, argillosus. argolosis, which is wow. one of my favorites. It's yeah. a white one with patterns and you know, colors in it spots that's it's really awesome. pretty yeah. and variable too
0: yeah the calicortis is just a wild genus yes and i mean what's exciting too is like you see it in the flora because obviously you're really into plants and and you're noting a handful of animals that are already doing some of the work for you but you know, like you said, monocultures don't support anything. Suddenly, now you've got biodiversity out there that is setting the foundation for even more of that ecology coming back into place. And, you know, we, we should be thinking on a landscape scale, but that does not discount or discredit the work done on more regional or local scales either. It is so important to have these havens because most of the built environment until we can get to it is not really conducive to a lot of biodiversity support.
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Um, we're lucky here in California. This is the only place I've ever lived where major predators still are yeah. around. Yeah, I mean, we have mountain lions walking around our neighborhood at night.
0: It's fantastic. I don't care what anyone says. I love it.
1: <laughs> I've never seen one, but I see what they do. Uh, there was one time in Edgewood, I was came upon a stomach,
0: <laughs> hanging
1: on the ground. Like, oh, oh that's- that's interesting. Yum. <laughs> and then I found out it's what cats do. Mm. Cats kill the prey, gut them, eat the good stuff, leave the icky stuff for the coyotes to eat. All right. And the stomach and the intestines are icky stuff.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of nasty in there.
1: Yeah. So, and that's the other thing too. Now that we're getting um, mountain lions in there, the ecology of fear is starting to come back.
0: Ah, okay. Elaborate have- a
1: little bit on that. Okay, well, we had, uh, there's a creek along the Clarkia that has a lot of leopard lilies. Okay. So, Lilium partilinum. And um, deer in the last 20 years have increased so much in this area. They were just mowing them down. Yeah. I mean, there are pictures in the past where you know it's all these pretty flowers and you go in there and it's just and all the plants are chewed up and gone. Yeah. Well, now they're starting to flower again. They're still getting mowed down pretty bad, but we're at least seeing some flowers and some seed set. Right. And I'm hoping that will happen with the frullaria liliaceae, too, oh, because man. that gets pounded. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is important. This is all part of the ecological process. And I understand that like the overabundance of herbivores like deer is largely a human problem, but we also have the the means to fix it. We understand what it takes to fix it. And it's good for the deer in the long run to have healthy, sustainable populations because then their food source doesn't go away. If the food source is gone, that means no plants supporting the rest of biodiversity. And it really, to me, has to start with predators.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean... It really is appalling to look at the browse line. You know, I can see we get no uh, regeneration here of the um, oak trees that are deciduous. The blue oaks, the valley oaks, they get mowed so badly that they can't survive. Wow. They just die. No seedlings come up. Well, they come up, but they don't survive. The only one that survives is the California uh, coast live oak.
0: Hmm.
1: And that does it by being a lot of spiky little leaves all <laughs> compacted with all these sticks. So you see the, pl- this plant will grow as a mound and the mound gets wider and wider until finally the deer can't reach the center one and boop, up comes the tree. Huh. <laughs> and then it's a, it's off and going, but you don't see any regeneration of blue oaks or valley oaks unless there's an exclusion of deer. Right. I've done it in my yard. Uh, nice. In fact, I actually had somebody say, oh, climate change has made it impossible for blue oaks to survive. Bullhawking. <laughs> All I did was fence my back ear for deer, and I've got lots of blue oak seedlings.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> There you go. Data speaks for itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's impressive. And, and thinking about, you know, going back to the grasses, it grass invasion is its own topic. I mean, it is globally a huge issue because grasses really do change ecology in a big way. Are you seeing any hints that you have some solutions to this or is it kind of all hands well, on deck still?
1: Uh, one of the things that, that I learned, um, we have a an organization, Cal mm-hmm. California invasive plant council, and I like to go to their, um, when I can afford it, when they're close by, <laughs> go to their conferences. And I went to a talk on the grasses. And they say, our native grasses should, perennial ones, should beat out the annuals.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, okay, why aren't they? Well, it's because the annuals shade out the seedlings. And I did an experiment in my yard. I planted a seed of... Um, lepida, the foothill needle grass. Uh-huh. And so I had the on sticking in, out of the ground. <laughs> so I knew exactly where it was. Saw right. it come up. The first year it had three grass blades, no more than a couple inches long. Wow. That was it. Wow. It was putting all of its effort into putting the roots down. Yeah. And all you had to do was have the annuals shaded out and it's gone.
0: Right. It has no energy to put into the roots.
1: That's correct. Now, huh. As long as we can keep the uh, taller grasses at bay, and Yellow Star was actually one of the weeds that was doing this. We have areas now that are really full of native grass. Wow,
0: that's exciting. And
1: and when you see that, some of these non-native grasses hardly show up at all. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I mean, they just can't get started. I mean, here's this grass already there with its roots already there. Okay, come on in. Where are the resources you're going to use? Yeah, yeah. Here you go.
0: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So yeah, we've got
1: uh, some places that are beautiful clump grasses all through. Best, best place I've ever seen Wow. in the Bay Area for that kind of grass. And that's, that's saying something have. for a botany, yeah. right?
0: Like when you can go like, no, this is good. This is like, yeah. it's a... That's what you want to hear from, but how do you keep these non-natives at bay? I mean, what if someone's listening? That's like, okay, what do I do to kind of knock it back a little bit?
1: Well, once again, mowing, and we're use um we're doing an experiment at Edgewood right now. It's fairly costly, mm. but it's um, using a um, power washing. is what it is. Oh. Uh, the title of it is hydro mechanical pulverization. <laughs> <laughs> and they use a uh, this power washing head, very very fine mist. It's Ooh. very small small amount of water, but it's coming out so fast that you just go over an area and it just tears up the entire annual plant. Nice. They're gone. Nice. Tears up the perennials, but they're underground too, so they come right back.
0: Sure. Going back so to what you said, it's the roots We've that- been
1: watching that to see if it'll work. Uh it's going to be really hard to do the entire park. Yeah. And then, of course, watch whether the uh, perennials then can hold the ground. Right. Once they get started. Right. Where I've done it, you know, the grasses hold the ground. but There isn't much else. You know, I'd like to see a little more diversity in there. Sure. Yeah. So.
0: (laughs) it's exciting. I mean, tantalizing, but that's where these experiments have to happen. And, you know, this is where the long-term sort of data has to speak for itself because this stuff is happening on timescales you and I just really can't fully comprehend or appreciate.
1: That's right. You know, I've been doing this for 20 what is It started in 95. How long is that? Almost <laughs> 23 years. Yeah. Pretty wild and to just, think. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Time flies. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the cool thing, though, is this stuff is possible, right? I mean, you're living proof that a, a little bit of effort goes a long way and dedication to it. And that we can all have a stake in this. This isn't something that you sat in an ivory tower in some academic institution and yeah. said, stay away, everyone. I've got this. This is, this is really a grassroots effort. No, no pun intended, I guess.
1: No, it's not a pun. It is a grassroots <laughs> it's legitimate. Effort. I'll tell you a story of one of my best weeders. It's kind of a sad story because he didn't live no. very long. Um, But he he was told by his sister, he's kind of a person who had not had a a good life. Mm -hmm. He's addicted to alcohol. And, you know, he had a personality where he didn't like to be with more than three people at a time.
0: I can understand that. (laughs)
1: Smart person. Yeah. So he comes out. His his sister says, you know, stop moping around. Go out and do something. So he chose to come out to weed with us. And he came out and he thought we were. nuts (laughs) nuts <laughs> once he started to see we were actually making a difference he just went into it full bore wow he he became a botanist he kn- knew nothing about plants he began to learn them all hmm. and he because he didn't like to be with the group when he came waiting in the morning he'd go off by himself <laughs> and then come back when when it was down to me and a few others yeah. But he was my eyes. He would go everywhere. He'd find all these weeds. He'd find things. And he'd begin to say, you know, I've seen something that I don't recognize. Turns Hmm. out new plants, you know. Yeah. One year I've had three new native species. Awesome. Which is really cool.
0: That's rad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a place that's botanized really heavily. Yeah. And, you know, to find something that nobody had seen before. Well, it helps to have somebody go to places where nobody would bother to go. <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> I always wonder that. You're like, yeah, if you stay on trail, that's all you see. But what happens way over there in the corner, the the, the nooks and crannies? Not to say like go trampling everywhere, but yeah, it, it, yeah. Well, that's what
1: we do. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, we I have to go out and wander around everywhere I can possibly get just to see what's going on. Once I find a. a spot I have to go back and clean the weeds out
0: right exactly because those little nucleation sites could be the next big
1: exactly and some of them are full of poison oak (laughs) oh
0: yeah I feel for you (laughs) I don't know if it's like objectively worse but I've only known it to be worse than poison ivy
1: yeah well poison ivy poison oak you know I get them both (laughs) I I lived in the east so I know poison ivy quite well
0: both will cause you some suffering Yep.
1: No. Did you know, by the way, that uh, poison ivy makes it all the way out into uh, eastern Washington and eastern Oregon? No, I had no idea. Yeah, it surprised me, too. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Hello, I'm here. <laughs> I, I knew it was in Wyoming because I, when I was doing my field camp, um, I came up into these canyons and I looked down like, there's poison ivy.
0: Wait a minute. And
1: what, yeah, and... This other uh, geology student said, no, that's not poison ivy. And he rubbed it up and down his arm. Guess who was right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Weird hill to die on that week, but okay.
1: (laughs) Also, I I once had to uh, map, what was the name of that? Rabbit Mountain Anticline in eastern Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I did it in December. And you know how the stems... Yeah, Just out there. You can't really see them unless you're thinking about it. Right. And I hadn't thought about it. I <laughs> had this horrible case of poison ivy. Aww. Next time I went out, I looked, I found them. Yeah, There they are. <laughs> <Sure enough. laughs> Gone up my pant, behind my pant leg. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. Yeah. What always gets me is getting over uh, tree falls in the winter when they're like, oh, these are just, uh, you know, uh, parthenocissus vines. And you're like, no, nope, no, nope, that's a bunch of poison ivy as well. Yeah. Yeah
1: fortunately poison oak does not quite climb as well nice it still gets up into the trees but it's not like poison ivy where i remember trees where the lower limbs were all poison ivy you yeah. Know?
0: yeah oh i've done that so many times you take binoculars you're like wait what is this oh god
1: <laughs> look higher that's what the tree yeah, is that's yeah. stuffed all poison ivy down here
0: hickory bark weird trifoliate leaves oh wait a minute Uh, yeah. Lessons learned. Uh, luckily I'm not that susceptible, but you know, going back to what you said about success and seeing success and how important that is, I think we're so addicted to bad news and sure enough, there is a lot of it out there, but people do not take the time to celebrate the successes because that's where we learn. That's where we understand that these things are possible. I mean, success has to be screamed at the top of our lungs,
1: no matter how big or small it is. Yeah. And what I like is that, you know, our program has spun off other programs and nice. it's also, I've been help, uh, able to t- train people how to do what I do. That's awesome. And they do it successfully and, you know, like, well, okay, you're on your own now. You know,
0: Awesome. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Take inspiration and run with
1: it. We have an um, organization out here. It's a um, mid pen, mid mid Peninsula Regional Open Space District, and they own 600,000 acres, no, 60,000 acres, that's it,
0: up in the Santa
1: Cruz Mountains. Yeah, It's a lot of of territory, and they're preserves, um, you can go up and hike them, and they're starting to do weed control, and Grassroots Ecology was hired to do it at the little one here in Portola Valley, and I told them how the plan would work, and they they did it, and now Midpen's going, wow, they got rid of that yellow star. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works. It works. <laughs> oh,
0: that's exciting. Well, yep. Testament to the fruits of all the labor you and your colleagues and friends have put in.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what are you excited about on the horizon? I mean, what, what, you're working uh, on some experiments. Like, what's what's kind of just over the hill for you?
1: Well, um, the other wor- uh, weed we're going after now is tocolote. I don't
0: know that one. It's
1: Centaria melatensis.
0: Oh, a Centauri. It's
1: Yellow Star's little cousin. How lovely. And in fact, it looks so much like Yellowstar Star that people often had trouble um, mm. identifying it. I okay. remember somebody who had some biocontrols for it and they uh, attempted to feed it. And I said, well, you fed it the wrong stuff. Darn. <laughs> Oops. But the trick on that one is... Uh, there's a preserve over here that, uh, Stanford has Jasper Ridge, it's their biological uh, preserve. Mm-hmm. And I go over there and one day we were out looking at uh, the last of the, um, chia, um, that grows in huh. uh, there. And you know, it's uh, Salvia columbari. It's probably as about as far North as it gets. I think there's some up in, uh, as far as Sonoma County, but you know, it's a desert plant. Sure. So, it was declining. And then somebody said, boy, there's a lot of tocolote here. So we took some out. Hmm. Stuff came roaring back. Wow, Yeah, so I said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> took that to Edgewood where we had no chia that the docents could point out on trail because what's on the trails? Weeds. Hmm. Went in, cleaned out the tocolote. We had a place that had so much tocolote, we called it tocolopolis. <laughs> <laughs> it's on our map nice. <laughs> and it had chia in it awesome. and we've been removing the chia uh, the uh Tocolode and it and two other plants that are associates with it are growing in with it now. awesome so and yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to that and tocolote is all not as bad as yellow star yeah it's more of a southern weed okay um if you go south of here down the um robles area Tokolodi takes over from Yellow Star. Yellow Stars are weed from further north. Mm. So we're taking that out of Edgewood now. Sorry. Excellent. Resolved. I have no idea what the seed bank is on that one. So yeah.
0: takes time and effort. We'll find but out. <laughs> yeah. Glad you're all on the ground trying to learn about it. Yep. That's awesome.
1: We have actually treated well over 85 weeds, maybe 90 weed species in Edgewood. Wow. Not just Yellow Star. Yeah, that's the other part of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Never in isolation.
1: (laughs) No, we have all kinds of stuff.
0: Well, we're thankful you're doing it. That's for sure. Yeah. And so if people want to learn more about these efforts, uh, you know, it's about the stuff we talked about today. Any links or, or recommendations on where they should go looking?
1: Hmm. We do have a website for the Friends of Edgewood, which okay. talks about our weeding sites, mostly for signing up, but I don't know if anybody-
0: <laughs> yeah, it counts. I got a lot of listeners in California, so- and- Yeah,
1: I might want to come and take a look. Awesome. Um, yeah, wish I could help you out with that because I really don't- I'm not somebody who writes things down. That's I quite just- all
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember everything we talked about. I will put up links to uh, uh, Edgewood and- um, uh, grassroots and and we'll make sure that they at least hear about that. If you think of anything, just email it to me and oh, I'll put it up with the show.
1: Calypsy is a good place to go. Perfect. Um, Calypsy is the invasive plant council. They have a um, inventory of invasive plants for California and they maintain it. Excellent. And we have actually contributed to that from Edgewood. Awesome. Um, there's a we we work on a lot because it's a real pain um italian thistle this is uh carduous pycnocephala oh god and it was it's horrible you know we were having all this trouble with it and it wasn't even in the inventory so we like, hey you know by the way you think we've got a bad weed here <laughs> Keep your yeah we up. do now it's everywhere and so everybody realizes yeah. it's, it's rated pretty high but it was one of those that they did they didn't have it uh and the thing about it, the inventory, is it has all of the stuff to evaluate your weed. Nice. Here's, here's how they evaluate it. You can go in and do it yourself and see what you come up with for your area. Because Good. the inventory essentially is for the entire state. And you may be seeing something very different from other places in the state. Yeah, especially you may be-
0: <laughs> one like California. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I
1: don't know if you know it, but an awful lot of weeds have a... Re- um, what they call a resting stage or a latent stage
0: mm-hmm.
1: where they don't do very much and right. then they take off yeah and i i listened to a talk by joe D. Tommaso that he gave to the wildlife association and he made this outrageous statement and that was that the uh, yellow star produces no nectar huh? wait a second that's what the honey people love about yellow star produces this great honey What's he talking oh, about? And then he said, in its native land. Oh. So when it was brought over here, it didn't really produce much nectar and it didn't have its regular pollinator back in the old country. Huh. So it wasn't doing that well. Interesting. Until some some of the plants started to do, produce enough nectar to attract honeybees. Boom, off it went. went from, uh, you know, like, three or four seeds per seed head to uh, 20 to 30 per seed head.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Fascinating ecological dynamic there.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, you never can't trust any of these non-native plants (laughs) because they evolve just like everything else. And that's
0: the other part. (laughs) This isn't a static thing. (laughs) It's biology. It's dynamic.
1: (laughs) Did you know that there was a weed that actually developed up in Oregon? I think it was Washington. And it was a hybrid between two species of European plants. Oh, man. And the hybrid, the two that they brought over were, you know, stuck in particular habitats. The hybrid doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Goes everywhere. Hybrid.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm one of my favorites. I think it's the bamboo orchid was a lovely horticultural thing that never got pollinated outside of its native range. So it was never a problem in tropical areas until we introduced the honeybee, a generalist pollinator, and suddenly it had a vector for its pollen. And now it is, I don't know, necessarily invasive in most places, but boy, is it naturalizing.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know about the Epipactus hellebrenae. Oh, yes. Uh, it was
0: one of the first orchids I ever identified out east.
1: Well, you know, what was funny about that is that showed up here in California not long ago. What's this orchid? Oh, boy. And if you look at the, I don't know what do they call them, but the, not field guides the big ones like oh jumps. the
0: keys yeah the floras the keys yeah. the, the,
1: the floras oh, that's like, what i'm talking like a big the, the, the floors for the different um areas yeah you can see <laughs> when the supplement comes in when it arrived <laughs> tracking it the... uh,
0: yeah
1: it's not in this volume but it's in this volume yep you know? <laughs> and that's
0: the year it happened and that's the time it hit that count yep, yep. Yeah, so, I, uh, it's one of the only orchids I could walk around the city of Buffalo and say, oh, yeah, that, there it is. It's the only orchid I could ever find in an urban environment.
1: Did, did it ever lose its chlorophyll in the east?
0: Not that I've seen. Not to say that's not possible, but uh, I haven't seen any of the anomalous achlorophyllous ones.
1: We, we've had a number of them here, and I, I'm wondering if that's something that California is pushing.
0: Huh, <laughs> interesting.
1: They're really pretty when they're...
0: Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. <laughs> Ah, uh, plants, never-ending yep. source of amusement.
1: But Where were we? <laughs> no, the
0: epipactus. But uh, yeah, I mean, just to kind of wrap up here, I mean, Paul, this is really fascinating stuff. I so love your energy and your enthusiasm for it, but I thank you so much for dedicating so much time to understanding this stuff and, and doing something to protect native biodiversity because we need to be doing it. And you are yeah. a class act example of how any anyone and everyone can get out there and do something for their local ecology.
1: By the way, that was one of the other things I uh, for, forced myself to do, to recognize them from the moment they came up, the uh, cotyledons. Yes. And so <laughs> essentially for me, no way to safe from the moment it comes up from seeds <laughs> to the moment <minute> it dies.
0: <laughs> I'm telling you, we need field guides for every stage of a plant's life. I mean, that is so important.
1: Well, we do have that. Um the weeds of Western weeds of California and Western States has a little thing that shows almost all the stages. Excellent. And it's pretty nice uh, way, but I actually look for them to the very point at which they came up from seed. Like That's our awesome. biggest weed, the eucalyptus. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny looking seedling, but I, I, I know what that looks like too. <laughs> Yoink, and you're gone. Yeah. I mean, when it's this big <laughs> and you can get it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot easier to deal with them at that size. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, again, just, thank you yeah. so much for doing it.
1: All right. Well, thanks for doing this, man. It's really a uh, interesting uh, podcast you've got here. There's no doubt about it.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And it's only as good as the people I've on. So thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, you have good people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: appreciate that. <laughs> well, hang in there, stay healthy and keep up the amazing work.
1: All right. Keep up the work.
0: we Will do. Cheers.
1: Okay. Thanks for taking me. Bye
0: bye. Bye. All right. What a fantastic human being. What an inspiring human being. I thank him so much for talking to us about all of the efforts he's put into protecting native plant diversity. It is so important to understand that whereas it's not the invasive species fault that they're here, things have to be done to protect the plants that they're displacing. And of course, all of the ecology that depends on those native plants. I thank Paul for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us And of course, go check out the show notes for all of the relevant links for everything we talked about today. Before I let you go, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Andrea and Pam. Both of them signed up at the producer credit level, so they're doing everything possible to help keep the show up and running each and every week. I couldn't be doing it without patrons such as Andrea and Pam, as well as everyone else that supports the show from month to month. Thank you so much. You can also help support the show by picking up a copy of my book, any of our merch, which includes apparel and stickers, or at the very least, by hitting that subscribe button. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, I hope you hang in there, stay healthy, be good to each other, and most importantly, get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.